Well, good morning, everyone. As we're making our way to our seats, let me open us with a word of prayer and we'll jump right back into where we left off a month or so ago. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to be a part of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Lord, I thank you for the teaching we've already received this morning and I pray for the rest of our time today as your people. I pray that the words that I'm about to share will will not distract or obscure anything, but Lord, that they'll illuminate as we begin to study this text. And I do pray for all those in our midst who can't be here today, including John and Beth. Lord, it's so important for us to be with one another, and when we're prevented from doing that by illness, it's so difficult. So I just pray that you would restore John and Beth to health, and, and also all the others who aren't able to be here today because of illness, restore them to health as well. Lord, as we study Second Peter, I pray that you'll help us keep our focus on you. Help us remember the big picture, even as we're going to get into some details and the lessons that follow. Lord, help us always remember who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be back in class. And even though I've been teaching the last few weeks, I was teaching the materials that I'd been studying for the community fellowship class. But I was not teaching that today. This morning I was in the new members class teaching there, but this morning in Faith Builders we're going to get back to Second Peter. Now I'm already thrown off from the standpoint of my love of symmetry because people over here are close and y'all are very far. So I'm just, I'm trying to wrestle with the idea that I should be, okay, this is equidistant from everybody. But then it throws me off of my center line, which is where I like to stand. So, um, oh. Lord, help me. Um, Okay. This feels better now. So, so as we had begun to get into 2 Peter chapter 2, as I mentioned, we covered this about a month ago, really is getting into the heart of why this letter was written. The first chapter is just a reminder to us of all the blessings we have. It's an important chapter. I've said many times if if I could get believers to really believe, apart from their salvation, one thing, it'd be the promise of Second Peter chapter 1 that says that God, by His power, has already given us all that we need for life and godliness. We don't have to look elsewhere. We have it all. We have it through His Spirit. We have it in His Word. But chapter 1, we're really just reminders. Peter said, I know you know these things. I'm just going to remind you. I'll keep reminding you, he was getting ready to die. He knew that his life was coming to a close, and so he had an urgency saying, I'm going to remind you of all this truth. And one of the reminders at the end of chapter 1 was how the scriptures come about. A prophecy doesn't come about because somebody had an act of their will. It's by God moving through these men. So God spoke through men the prophetic word, and that brings chapter 2. So chapter 2, as we get into it, we'll go over the first three verses. I've already taught them, so it's going to be a very quick review. But it says this, But false prophets also arose among the people. In other words, the contrast is this. Peter wants us grounded in the truth. God inspired the truth. No word came about because some man decided I'm going to do it. It was God speaking. We can believe it. We can take it to the bank, so to speak. But just as God was speaking truth through his men, 
Satan was speaking lies through his. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, meaning many people in the church will follow the sexual immorality of those teachers. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, I'll give you a snapshot. Everything that we're going to start covering today and over the next however many weeks it takes me to get through it is really dealing with that issue. These false teachers are going to be judged. Right now, they seem to be having the time of their life. They're having all kinds of sexual relations. They're sexually immoral. They're making money. They figured out a way to fleece people. But as he said, they're going to have swift destruction. It doesn't mean tomorrow. It just means that at the moment they enter into eternity, boom, the reality of what they've done is going to hit. He says their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, he was saying to the people, yes, these false teachers are going to be here, but God's going to take care of them. Now, as I introduced that message, and again, I'm just quickly going over it. I did, I think, two messages on this. And Wayne is so faithful to upload them to the internet. You can listen to this teaching. But I basically, I just went through four characteristics of false teachers, and that was it. It was deception, immorality, greed, damnation. The false teachers sneak into the church claiming to be speaking to the truth. They secretly introduce destructive heresy. They're smuggling it in. They're disguising themselves as, as angels of light. That's the deception. In their lives, once you get below the surface, if you can peel back the layers, are characterized by sexual immorality. And the church follows their example. Many will follow them. Immorality. They're motivated by love of money. They're coming up with fake words. They'll exploit you with false words. In other words, they're going to make a buck off of you. Greed. But the fourth point was damnation, meaning these, these false teachers are going to be judged. They're not getting away with it. And that really is the heart of what's here. Chapter 2 is really all dealing with false teachers. And Peter summarizes what he's saying in those first three verses, but now he's going to elaborate. The next section is going to be talking about judgment, but also hope. That goes from verse 4 to the middle of verse 10. We're going to start covering that today. And then the last part elaborates more about false teachers. But again, this is the last words Peter's probably going to write these churches he knows he's going to die soon. But this was so critical to him. These are sort of his dying words. When you think about it, if God told you, look, you're going to die on Thursday, what would you tell people between now and Thursday? You'd be thinking seriously about it. This is important. So it's interesting to me that Peter spends so much time in what follows, not just saying, be careful about false teachers, but explaining what happens to them. 
And I think the context helps us understand things of what does a sin-filled world look like. Over and over again, it looks like evil is winning. It looks like evil is getting away with it. Now, we step back theologically, we understand that God is relenting in judgment because He doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. He wants people to have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. He's sovereign over salvation, and yet the Bible still says that He's delaying to allow people a chance to repent. But in Peter's day, life was hard. The Roman government was corrupt and oppressive. Things were not going their way. The early church suffered a lot. There were false religions all around them that people loved and it wasn't the church. There's a sense in which things haven't changed in all these years. I mean, let's be honest, doesn't it look right now like evil's winning in the world? <laughs> it's on the march. I just was writing down a few things of what we see in the world. And I'm influenced heavily by my childhood, but when I was a kid, the Soviet Union was the big monster. I mean, I remember the drills where you get down under your desk. It's a silly drill for a nuclear explosion, but hey, that's what we did. <laughs> that was that dark cloud hanging over us. And it's interesting because once we had the collapse of the Soviet Union, it seemed like that cloud lifted a little bit for just a little bit. And now Russia's invaded Ukraine. And they've been devastating everything. They've got a different take on what humanity is. They're just destroying everything. And yet we've forgotten about Ukraine. Why? Because of Israel. Because Israel, I'm, don't be deceived by anything else you read, they're fighting for their very existence. It's a scary time when you look at the world, but Hamas not only attacked and killed over a thousand Israelis, they did something else. They exposed the extent of satanic anti-Semitism around the world, including in the United States. We're seeing it all over college campuses. We're hearing it from politicians. I've shared it at various times in a variety of ways. I was not a believer, but I can remember my granny sitting in her kitchen in Perry telling me things that I didn't fully understand, but she would specifically tell me Genesis 12.3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And she would say, part of the reason America has what it has is because we're a friend of Israel. And if we turn our backs on Israel, we turn our backs further on God. And yet Israel is isolated. Even the politicians who have come out in support of Israel are looking for the exit because Hamas hides themselves under hospitals and behind civilians. They could care less about human life. They'd come in right now and use every one of us as cannon fodder. Israel's on a short leash. But that's just the big scary world. The rampant immorality we face is beyond belief. 
Again, it's coming through the prism of the LGBTQ stuff, but every single week, there's more and more of this propaganda pumped out at us. It's on TV shows. It's on movies. Read a fascinating, it's the illogic. It's the deluded minds of the world. An LGBTQ activist at a pro-Palestinian rally thought a pro-Palestinian person would be sympathetic, but Islam hates LGBTQ. And there was a recording of it, and it was, it was one of those, ha ha ha, but except pathetically sad, because they're all going to hell. They're just going on different parts of the wide path. I mean, I never thought we'd get to the point, just because I never thought about it, where parents are talking about doing things with four and five-year-olds, because this child isn't the right gender. That, that's the dumbest thing you could ever hear. I mean, if you, the parent gave their teenager a cigarette, they'd go to prison, but they can have life-altering surgery and drugs to destroy who they are in the name of progress. So all this evil seems to be on the march. And sadly, it's just engulfed a lot of what we think of or what we used to think of as Christendom. Church after church after church. I used at the close of one of my messages on those verses of false teachers, Andy Stanley. Far unlike his father, literally promoting homosexual relationships and condoning it while saying, that's not my position. But he's endorsing it. It's doublespeak. And other denominations that we think of as Christian have all since left the barn. The Episcopal Church has this statement on their national website. We have a legacy of inclusion, aspiring to tell and exemplify God's love for every human being. Ordination and the offices of bishop, priest, and deacon are open to all without discrimination. Lay people and clergy cooperate as leaders at all levels of our church. Leadership is a gift from God and can be expressed by all people in our church regardless of gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity or expression. In other words... We'll take anybody. Presbyterian Church says this, that persons in a Presbyterian Church, USA, there are two distinctions. There's more than that, but big numbers. Most Presbyterian churches fit either PCA or PCUSA. PCUSA says this, persons in a same gender relationship may be considered for ordination and or installation as deacons, ruling elders, and teaching elders. You can find lists of all the denominations that embrace statements like that. Now, God said, you can't even get into the kingdom of God if you continue in a life of immorality. But these churches are saying, hey, come on in. In fact, we'll hire you to teach other people. We'll affirm you. Again, it seems like the culture is winning. But in case we want to throw all our rocks at the LGBTQ stuff... Christendom doesn't do itself any favors when pastor after pastor is happy to engage in heterosexual immorality. Disqualifying themselves, even in our area. Again, we live in truly wicked times. It was a tragic story last week. It was disturbing and sad because the person committed suicide, but a, a pastor of a Baptist church in Alabama who was also a local mayor was found having all of these pictures of himself dressed up like as a woman. That was the private life. 
I read a crazy article by someone saying, well, why in the world would somebody put that out there? That has nothing to do with his job as a pastor. Again, it seems like evil is winning. And we just had some minor elections. Didn't bode well for next year. On and on it goes. We're living in the days of Romans 1, period. And just as they did not, I'm just reading 28 to 32, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. We see it everywhere around us. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. That describes everything I just talked about. The wars, the murders, the rampant immorality, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, and this is where we live. What's next? They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I mean, it feels like we're on an island and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And there are pastors doing that, giving hearty approval to that type of behavior. Teaching church members that it's okay. Going to these types of pride festivals and everything else. Every pastor is a sinner, don't get me wrong. But not feeling bad about sin. Not repenting of sin. But embracing it and justifying it and saying, God doesn't even mind. Come on in. There's a scene in a movie that I watched as a kid. I still like the movie. But the good guy and the bad guy are walking together. And it looks like they're sort of on the same page. And they're walking across the bridge. And there's all kinds of alligators and crocodiles that are just waiting to eat whoever's there. And on the other end of the bridge, there's a little island. And as they're walking, the good and the bad are walking together. They seem to be together. And they're just talking. And all of a sudden, the good guy is standing there. They're on the island. And all of a sudden, he can tell, whoop. He turns around and the bridge is retracting. And the bad guy's going back. And the good guy's just there by himself with all the animals around waiting to eat him. That's what it feels like to be the church right now. For a long time in America, we thought we were walking with our culture because the culture espoused the values that we sort of espoused. They were walking with us. And then all of a sudden we turn around and look and the culture went the other way and the government went the other way and the schools went the other way and we're just standing there surrounded going, whoa. Now, in the movie, the good guy got away and what Peter's talking about is supposed to give us hope. Because as bad as everything looks, we've got to take a big picture and understand from redemptive history, understand from the scriptures that it's going to be okay. Even though it feels like we are surrounded and hopeless in the midst of evil, we're not hopeless. We're okay. We still keep doing what we're doing. We still keep loving people 
We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We submit to the government. We do all the things the scripture calls us to do knowing that God has our back. We're going to be okay. And we also know this. The perpetrators of evil, particularly and especially those within the church claiming to be Christian teachers who are false teachers, you don't have to lose sleep over them. God will take care of them. So it's a warning, but it's also a message of hope for all of us what's coming next. So follow along with me because this is important. We're trying to enter through the narrow gate. That's where we are. And we get through the narrow gate, but we can look and the way is broad and wide and everybody's finding it and the freeways are full of people going that way. Don't envy them. So follow along. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2 and I'm going to read verses 4 through the first part of 10 and we're only going to begin to start studying this. In fact, I don't have it in my notes. I'm going to pull it up. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read starting at... Chapter 2, verse 1. I want to read the whole thing. So we're going to read... I'm going to read those first verses, and I'm going to read it through to the middle of verse 10. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Here's our new material. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world... But preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So as I break this down, Peter is using three historical examples to show us that God will take care of us and He'll also take care of evil. So as I've broken it down, the outline is going to be a little unique. It's going to be three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning. Three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning. But after I give the three examples, then I'm going to summarize everything because that's what verse 9 and beginning of 10 do. So the three examples show, the three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning show 
that we don't have to worry. God's got it under control. I'm going to give you all three of the examples, then I'm going to start covering the first one, and we won't probably get it completed today. Three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning. One, God's treatment of angelic sin. God's treatment of angelic sin. Number two, God's acts during the time of Noah. God's acts during the time of Noah. And number three, God's actions in the days of Lot. God's actions in the days of Lot. And I'm going to tell you once we get into it, that points one and two are in the same general biblical frame of time. So first, let's start looking today at our first example, and it's God's treatment of angelic sin. And we see this in verse 4. It's very straightforward, but Peter's assuming these hearers know a lot. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, And in these contexts, this isn't if that happened, this is this did happen. Really, it's like since. In other words, God didn't spare these angels when they sinned. They're cast into hell and they're committed to pits of darkness. Now again, Peter's making this argument on its own, but by borrowing other scriptures and bringing it together, I believe that this occurred in the same time frame as point two of Noah's life when God sent a worldwide flood to destroy everything. I think it fits in there. Now it stands on its own, but it all connects together when we understand biblical history. Again, the big picture is he's trying to tell them that false teachers will get what's coming to them. Don't worry. He said their judgment from long ago is not idle at the end of verse 3 and their destruction is not asleep. He's just saying, look, I can prove to you that they're going to be judged. I can prove it to you this way. Look at what happened to the angels. God's going to judge the false teachers. They've turned against Jesus. They don't submit to Him. They lie. They are sexually immoral. They're stealing money. You can take it to the bank. They're not getting away with it. And one of the proofs is because God didn't let the angels get away with it. The question is, what exactly does he mean? He's really doing that with all three situations. Because the flood and then the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's showing where God dealt with evil emphatically and decisively. But again, here is this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. It's just straightforward. didn't happen. Angels sinned. They got what's coming to them. He didn't look away. He didn't overlook it. Even angels, these angelic messengers of God, who were, by our standards, almost supernatural in their abilities, they are supernatural from the standpoint of our earthly world, they don't get away with it either. But the question is, when's he talking about? When they sinned. Because there's an element that shows something unique here. Because God says, not only did He not spare them, but He cast them into hell. And that's just using a word from popular culture that came to be defined as hell for the church. The people would understand what He was saying. 
and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Some versions say chains of darkness. The idea is this, that these angels sinned and then God put them in hell, imprisoned. They're waiting to be judged. They're there. But that poses a challenge. We have to ask further because we know that's not all angels who sinned. What do we call angels who sinned? Demons. What was Satan himself? He was an angel. And we know from the New Testament, fallen angels, the demons are still active. In fact, Satan, their leader, Peter warned us in 1 Peter chapter 5 about him. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Verse 8, chapter 5, 1 Peter. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It doesn't sound like he's in hell, bound, in chains. He says he's prowling around. And we see him in scriptures free moving about. We see it in the book of Job. We see it in the temptation of Jesus. And we know there are countless demons who are still free, roaming, doing everything to disrupt the world. 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So we have to see all these things in the big picture and we start to have to peel away the layers to say, okay, this must be a subset of angels. Something's going on here. There is going to be a time in the Millennial Kingdom where Satan is bound. Revelation 21-3 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. So that's going to happen but we know it hasn't happened yet. But Peter's describing some angels that God judged that way And it seems that there are some angels who stepped over the bounds in a different way. Yes, all the demons are going to be judged. Satan and all the demons will be cast in the lake of fire. But Satan and countless demons are roaming right now seeking to destroy. I'm convinced Satan is behind all the anti-Semitism we see. The human art's hateful, but the specific hatred of the Jews is satanic. And you see it throughout redemptive history, but you see it in real life. But it's interesting, because we get a hint of this. And if you have a really, really good memory, I taught something similar to this a couple of years ago at this time when we were covering 1 Peter. Because in 1 Peter, he made a reference to something like this. And I pointed out that there are some hints where Jesus had interactions with demons and the demons were afraid of something. So for example, there's a long account in Luke chapter 8, verses 27 to 31. I probably don't have time to read it this morning. But Jesus saw a demon-possessed man and when the demonic 
possessedly possessed man saw Jesus, it says he cried out and fell before him and says, what business do we have each with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. I beg you, do not torment me. That's not the man talking, that's the demon talking. And the demon said, do not torment me. And it says the reason that the demon said that is because Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out. In other words, come out of that man. And that demon didn't want to. And we know from the account, the demon was named Legion. For many demons had entered the man. Verse 31, they were employing him not to command them to go away into the abyss. In other words, I think from the sum total and these things, you have to put it together. But there is a place where some demons are already bound, the abyss. Satan one day will be chained there. He's not yet. And these demons were afraid Jesus was going to put them there now. Please don't. It'll torment me. So it seems that even the fallen angels and Satan, they know they're going to be judged, but they also know that's not yet. But there are some demons that stepped over the line. Some angels who fell, who have sinned in such a way that God said, you aren't going to do anything more. You're just going to be bound. You're in the abyss. You're in hell. You're waiting for the final judgment. But you won't get to roam the earth. You won't get to do anything. The book of Jude references this same thing. There's only one chapter in Jude. But in Jude chapter 6, we see this reference. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. I think Jude is talking about the same angels who have sinned in verse 4 that we're covering this morning. And as I said, I taught on this, this same general idea in 1 Peter chapter 3. I didn't give the verse reference. It was verses 18 to 20 where it says this. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to the death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I explained in the context what's about to come. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now imprisoned, who once were disobedient... When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So when we start pulling all these things together, we see there's a specific subset of angels who in the days of Noah did something that got them bound. They've been bound. They're in prison. Now First Peter was simply saying that Jesus went and declared... It is finished. Sin's defeated. They were prevented from seeing what happened on the cross. Jesus was proclaiming victory to them. But it's clear. There were some spirits, there are some angels who sinned in the period of time represented by Noah who did something specifically bad. And it's these angels that Peter is referencing. 
And again, in the big picture, he's saying, look, I can promise you and I can prove to you that these false teachers who are living immoral lives, greedy lives, deceptive lives, I can prove to you, I can show you so that you don't doubt they will get what's coming to them. Because look what God did to the angels when they sinned. When they stepped over the bounds. So what did these specific angels do that was so bad that unlike Satan and the other demons, they were immediately put in chains, cast into darkness. They're being held even now in a place of torment. A place that the other angels that interacted with Jesus, they feared it and said, don't send us there. What did those angels do? Well, we'll cover that next week. So, um, we really will. But the next part of it, I'm confident with everything I've told you, the next part is challenging. Because we have to read between the lines. But I think we'll find it in Genesis chapter 6. And we'll see that it has to do with demonic possession of people that crossed some boundaries. That resulted in injecting a spirit of evilness and wickedness into humanity that was so bad that as we read, and we will read next week, every thought of the intention of the hearts of the people was corrupt and terrible. In fact, it was so bad that the Bible says God said enough. You're gone. I'm going to start over. I've got one righteous man Noah and I'll do it with him so we'll come back we'll dive into that next week and we'll continue on with this portion of scripture let me close this in prayer dear Heavenly Father I thank you for your mercy Lord as we look at the world in which we live evil seems to be transcendent but Lord you're sovereign Lord, I know in my heart I can get discouraged by what I see in the world. I get discouraged by what I see happening to the nation of Israel. I get discouraged what I see happening to the Jewish people. I get discouraged by what I see happening to the church. I get discouraged by the political system in America and the elections that just keep turning out like I don't want them to turn out. Lord, it's easy to get weary. I know I do. But I thank you for the promise of your word. Lord, I thank you that you continually lift our eyes off the things of the earth and direct our eyes to things in heaven. Lord, no one's getting away with anything. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. But Lord, for us who are living in these discouraging times, I pray that you'll give us hope. As we go through these verses and we see these acts of judgment, Lord, remind us because it's there as we see it that you're also in every situation, you're showing mercy. And Lord, we've been recipients of that mercy. And your promise that we're ultimately coming to in this text is that no matter how much evil is prevailing on the earth, you know how to rescue your children. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us believe it. Help us fix our hope on you, not on this earth. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to continue this next Sunday. I look forward to seeing you then.